We're live. We're going. It's Dirt from the Road. Brett Newski speaking to you. Uh, you may have heard like a little bit of this story in the, that I'm going to roll out in the intro here, but I'm going to tell the full tale. Um, so the first concert I ever went to was uh, the, my pops took me to see Bare Naked Ladies at the Marcus Amphitheater in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, I was really into the band. It was at the, like, the peak of their success. One Week had come out. Pinch Me had come out. So they were, they were like bringing like geek rock to the forefront. And um, I just always, I, I, I loved like the humor associated with songwriting because I always felt like there just wasn't enough of that. Um, you know, there's like in indie rock, it can be such a serious genre, you know, I think, um, if any genre takes itself too seriously, it's probably indie rock. So, you know, age 13 or 14 being kind of a dorky kid, it was pretty sweet to see, uh, bare naked ladies kind of getting somewhere using, you know, a bit of satire in their songs. So we go to the show it blows my mind. Um, you know, the production, the lights, the sound is really dialed in. And I'm like, wow. And on the drive home, my pops is like, hey, you know, uh, you should uh, you should get a guitar. You know, I think that'd be good for you. Seems like you'd be into that, something you'd be into. And I'd never considered getting a guitar before. I didn't even know how it worked. Didn't even know how it made sounds. And my, my dad's just like, yeah, you just kind of put your fingers along the fretboard, make different shapes. And I remember thinking, damn, that sounds really hard. But I went out, I got a job at McDonald's, and I made $5.15 an hour on the fry-a-later uh, to save up to get this guitar so I could learn how to play Bare Naked Lady songs like uh, lead singer Stephen Page, who was, you know, he was like my first musical hero as a little kid, uh, the front man of Bare Naked Ladies. And so I get the guitar, I, you know, I start learning songs, and turning on the distortion, and... I'm starting to like play power chords. I'm like, wow, that sounds like the song on the radio by Green Day or whatever. And fast forward to adult life. Um, I Stephen Page from Bare Naked Ladies was doing a solo tour in uh, the U.S. and he was playing Milwaukee, Wisconsin, my hometown. And of all the shows on the tour, this was the only show that, for whatever reason, it didn't have an opening support act. And Peter Jest from Shank Hall, he emailed me the day before. He's like, hey, you want to open for Stephen Page? I know you're a fan. I'm like, yeah, man, that'd be really incredible. Thanks for teeing that up. So I do the show with Stephen Page. It goes really well. And, you know, we get to hang a bit backstage. He, uh, you know... And uh, I'm working in the studio, you know, probably a year later with Spatola on these new songs. We're working on this song called I Should Have Listened to Ferris Bueller. And I'm like, you know what? This song kind of has a, a little bit of a power pop, bare naked ladies vibe to it, maybe a little bit. I'm going to email Stephen Page, see if he wants to sing harmony on it. What the hell? You know, there's really nothing to lose. And so I email Stephen Page. And I asked him, like, hey, what do you think of this song? Is this, uh, you know, no pressure? You feel like this is something maybe you could sing a quick harmony on or two or three? And uh, he emailed me back in, like, ten minutes. He's like, yeah, man, send over the track. I'll sing on this, and uh, I'll, I'll turn it around for you And next week. He turns it around. He sings harmony, sends it to us within, like, 36 hours. 
and boom, we get the track, and it fits in perfectly. I'm singing low. Um, he's singing the higher parts, and Spatola drops it into the mix, and it just fits so snugly. And we're like, whoa, fucking hell, Steve Pench from Bare Naked Ladies is singing on the record. So, um, yeah, the world of collaboration is alive, and a, perhaps it's becoming more of a, a thing in the indie rock and roll world, which is really cool. And... Um, yeah, I, I kind of want to play you this song. I've never played one of my own tunes on the pod before, but uh, I feel like this one is... It would be cool to, to show you this one, even though it's a little pluggy, but whatever. I don't really give a shit. So if you don't want to listen to it, just fast forward. It's like two minutes and 50 seconds. Um, and then we're going straight to the podcast episode with Steve Poltz, who's... I mean, he's like a DIY folk punk hero of mine. I mean, this guy... Um, he plays like 300 shows a year. Is it like no show is ever the same? He does like stand up routines. He goes mentally climbs the rafters. He like, it's just, uh, he's, he's beautifully psychotic on stage. It's, uh, it's something I, I aspire to in, in, on some levels to, to get as just as insane as he does, um, with his, with his live show and, and how spontaneous he is with the, with the improv and the off the cuff moments and the jokes. But so real quick, here's the song. Um, it's on the upcoming record called it's hard to be a person soundtrack to the book. And it's eight new songs to go along with this book I made called, it's hard to be a person, defeating anxiety, surviving the world, and having more fun. And you can pre-order it on the website, brettnewski.com. I think it's on Amazon at this point, although Bezos takes like a, a, a fat percentage. So if you want to grab the book and the album, get it through the website. We'll throw some extra stuff in there and some extra goodies and stickers and um, stuff like that. So here's the tune. Much love, much respect. Dirt from the road. Choop! I could get psyched to go out at night See my former friends, watch them all pretend That they don't know me, so I take a seat Next to you instead, wish I never did Why did I do that? Did I see that? Within on 
Inflicted now, 'cause I still hang around you and these talking heads, motor mouths at best. My welcome's wearing out, 'cause I can't take a hit right now. Why do I do this? Pults, we're live. Uh, how's your jump shot these days? It's so bad. That's so weird. You should ask. I was just at my friend Anthony DeCosta's place, and he had a hoop outside, and I've never been so horrible. You're balling, but yeah, it's tough. You can't just jump right back into basketball and be any good. It's really not one of those sports, you know. No, and um, I was never great at it, anyways. But I was kind of good when I was younger, you know. Yeah. Like a scrapper? Were you like a like a defensive stopper? I was like a hustler. I would dive, cut my knees, my elbows, anything. Nice. Very competitive, and then always spraining my fingers. Yeah, man. I've been trying to get back into hoops. I've been going up to the gym and playing pickup ball, and uh, like it's just like if I have a, a a bad day shooting, I just like beat myself up all day. I'm like, oh, it's. it's uh, <laughs> It ruins the day. I'm, it's it's really pathetic. I got to let that shit go, you know? What about baseball? Baseball, I was always pathetic. Like, um, I was on the JV. That's as far as I made it. And uh, we had this uh, real savage, like, Division One college pitcher named... Uh, Jeff Standish. He was a he was like an unbelievable pitcher. He was he was going D one and he was throwing like ninety miles an hour or more in high school. So uh it was always everyone's great fear to have to bat against him. And then like I was a JV kid, like fifteen, he was a senior, like eighteen, and sure enough, he threw a fastball right at me and it just pelted me in the back and it was uh it left Whoa. the belt for like a week. It was really horrifying. Yeah, he used to like. Um, I shouldn't have disclosed his full name. Maybe now that I say this, but he used to like shoot uh, fireworks at us when we <laughs> we hung out with his little brother, and uh, he would shoot fireworks at us when we pulled into the driveway. Good times. That guy. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, he's a good citizen now. Um. Now, what about? Did you play racquetball? No, my mom was a racquetball all-star, but I, you know, I got nothing. What was your, did you have like a weird sport that you were, you were kind of good at? I was a wrestler. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was a 98 pounder, so I wrestled for years. That was my thing. Because I didn't make the basketball team. Right. So um, the wrestling coach was there the day they put the names up and I didn't make it. And so when I didn't make it, um, he kind of saved my life because he said, hey, I need a 98-pounder. Yeah. And I weighed about 92. And so I was like, I guess I'll do that. And then it was wrestling was all the people that didn't make the basketball team or other sports are the big football guys where the coach would talk them into it, like yeah. the heavyweights. 
And then guys like me that were just little, he needed a 98 pounder. And so I was like really skinny and I just wanted to be needed by somebody. So he said he could use me on the team. Oh, and so that's what I did. So I got really into wrestling and, and then the wrestlers didn't get the cheerleaders. We got mat maids. That's what they were called. What's a and mat so, maid? That was like girls that didn't make cheerleader. <laughs> and then the wrestlers were the dudes that didn't make basketball. So it was like a bunch of rejects. So it was kind of cool. <laughs> you you would think the wrestlers deserve, I mean, they like deserve the cheerleaders even more than the basketball team because I feel like they're working harder. They're getting their ass kicked more. And uh, it seems unfair to me. It is. You know, it's a tough sport because you have to make weight because I wrestled 98 my freshman year, my junior year, and my sophomore year. I was 98. But by my junior year, it was hard to make 98. So I would have to diet. And you shouldn't really be dieting when you're young, but we did. Yeah. What was that like? So you would have to like go right before a meet you go in and like weigh yourself and you have to cut a bunch of weight to like get into a weight class was that like did that uh knock off the equilibrium in your brain ever or or were you okay well you were always worried about your weight i was constantly worried about what i was going to eat because it was hard to make 98 by the time I, i mean imagine being a junior in high school and trying to make 98 pounds and yeah but you want to wrestle a lighter weight usually because you have you, hopefully you still have your strength and you just wrestle down a weight and then you can, that's what everybody does though. Yeah. And so I would constantly be watching what I was eating. And then on the way to the match, if it was like a two hour bus ride, we would spit, get sour gum and try to spit off a quarter pound of saliva. <laughs> like they'd put a towel down and you'd get that Adam sour gum or whatever, really sour gum and just keep spitting. No shit. And yeah, you could spit off like a quarter pound sometimes. And no then, uh, yeah. And then if you were really drastic, you'd take X lax, but a lot of times there was nothing left in your body um, to get rid of. And so I did X lax once and then ate this macho combo burrito. And then I was on the mat and the X lax kept working. And no. so I crapped my pants on the wrestling mat. And I remember all the mat maids were laughing at me. And it no was like, shit. everybody was just going, oh my God. Cause you wear a tight singlet. Yeah. Like it's super tight and ours were red. So I, mine was just like, I was known as a dude that shit his pants on the wrestling mat. Was it like a projectile or did your pants like stick up for you and hold, hold her together? They kept it in, but then their uh, ump just walked over to the other guy and raised his arm up like that as the winner. And I just ran off to the showers. What, it was horrible. What, what did that do? Like, was there any permanent psychological damage there? Or was maybe that like such a hard thing it became like a net gain of like a lesson later in life? No, I think it permanently damaged me. I think yeah. I'm still damaged from it. I need to seek counseling. <laughs> <laughs> what? If, well, it's, it's wildly therapeutic to talk about things like that, you know, so big... Big ups for sharing that. That's solid gold podcast material. Yeah, that was back in like 1976, I think. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I mean, those were uh, those were scary times. I mean, uh, you know, middle and high school kids were so mean to each other. You know, you remember the judgment and uh, just like I remember, like uh, like it was scary to go down into the locker room in middle school because that was like a it was kind of like that prison zone where there's no cameras, like there was no teachers 
to like monitor what was going on. So that's when kids would like fight or like sometimes I got like slammed up into lockers. I remember I got like really pushed around by um by this this kid. He was probably like four foot seven or something. He was I he might have been like a legal small person. Um, but he was like jacked and ripped and he like pretty much beat the <laughs> crap out of me down in the uh, locker room. And uh, I had no fighting skills. I was, it was it was pretty embarrassing, Steve. You were not a good fighter. No, man. I mean, did you have to ha- ever have to use the wrestling skills outside of wrestling to defend yourself? Yeah, I did. I, uh, I actually dislocated a couple guys' arms um, in high school that were bigger than me because there were people would always fight in high school you know how high school is right people are always fighting and so yeah i dislocated a couple guys arms it was crazy i got in fights a couple times but and i feel like wrestling helped me in that way yeah but uh did your shirt say justin bieber absolutely yeah oh sorry i lost you word for you okay now i'm back does your shirt say justin bieber it does say justin bieber yeah i have I thought that might be in your wheelhouse. That's so cool. I love Justin Bieber. Yeah. Are you working on any of covering any of his tunes or anything? No, I just really like him. I love that song, Holy, Holy, Holy. So good. What a hook. I wish I wrote it. God. You should, yeah. I mean, that would be pretty cool. Like music that, that's that polished. If you did like a folk punk take on it, I think it would do well, you know? It might, yeah. I you think. Know? Has anybody done that yet? They probably have. Yeah, probably just by the sheer numbers of believers, but I haven't seen it, and I also haven't seeked it out. Um, Are you in Milwaukee? Yeah, how do you know this? Um, I think it said Milwaukee. Oh, cool. On your Instagram page. Yeah, man, it's a great town. Um, You would do well here. I, I know you've probably been here a million times, yeah. I've been there a few times, and I've never done well there, but I've always felt like I could. It's like one of those things, you ever have certain towns, you don't hit enough, and so you need to go back. I played yeah. that place, the Spinal Tap place. Uh, oh, Shank Hall. It? Shank Hall, yeah. I played yeah. there a couple times. And yeah. um, there's people I know back there, and there was a Cedar Cultural Center gig. That's Minneapolis, is that? Um, there was one outside of... Oh, yeah, Cedarburg, Cedarburg, yeah. Cedarburg, yeah. And so I need to go there more often. And I did play that big summer fest once. Yeah, yeah. The Johnson World Control stage to five people. Yeah, that'll happen. Yeah, and it was like brutal. It was just brutal trying to park and everything. And I was so excited about thinking it was going to be awesome that I was playing summer fest. (laughs) But it was not a good experience for me. I know it could be. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done all the range of different Summerfest gigs because I've been playing there since I was like 13 when I had a ska band in high school. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Where do you play there now? I don't I think we were on. We've been getting good slots there, like the 8 p.m.s the last couple of years. So we don't get sunburn when we play anymore. We used to get so sunburn and then because like, the sun would just be rocking you at like one in the afternoon or, um, you know, you can't see your pedals and your, your guitar strings can actually kind of like melt out of tune, as you know, if you play like directly in the sunlight. So, yeah. Can be Did a, you, um, where do you play if you play in Milwaukee, a regular show? Oh, uh, yeah. We, I mean, we've done it all, you know 
Turner Hall. We've done Shank Hall. Anodyne is an awesome venue, like uh, probably 250 cap, pretty cozy place, and they really neat staff, n- nice coffee. Um, are you cool. a coffee guy? Are you are you on the coffee? Yeah, I love coffee. Doesn't yeah. Willie Porter live there? Willie Porter lives down the street from me. He's a good bud. Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, I've he's kind of he's a great man. He's kind of like my second string dad. You know, he gives me wisdom, and uh, he calls the coffee mud, and he calls the weed cabbage, which I've adopted both of those terms. W- mud and cabbage, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Now, are you touring or what are you doing? I am uh, about to get back on the road and kind of do stuff, and yeah, starting in mid June, I'll kind of be pretty active again. But uh, actually, the reason I know about you is. Um, some gals in Milwaukee saw one of my shows like five, six, seven years ago, and they're like, "Hey, Newski, you're like a, you remind me of like a young Steve Poltz." Whoa! And, I, and I'm like, "Who's Steve Poltz?" And then they sent me yeah. like some of your records, and they took me to see you in Austin, and uh, yeah, I've been oh, a, wow. I've been on the Poltz train ever since, man. Oh, that's cool! You saw me in Austin, eh? Yeah, it uh, it was a good show. You were going you were going mental up there. It was great. Who brought you? Was it Sue Schrader? Sue Schrader. Yeah. Rick Rand? I don't know Rick Rand. Yeah. He's a nice guy. I love Rick. He lives in Milwaukee. Sue Schrader's great. Yeah, man. What what a total legend. I was just talking to her yesterday. But um, yeah, I, I love your ethos, man. I love that you're just down to get weird and uh, no shame. And the, the whole approach and your philosophies to music and touring, it's just like you know, let's play on a rooftop in New York or let's make a venue out of a, um, you know, a farm in Nashville or whatever. So I, I think that's kind of, I think the younger kids are starting to adopt that more and um, it gives you a bit of control over your own destiny in music, which is such a fickle bitch, as you know. Well, the DIY ethos is where it's at. And yeah. when I started playing, it was DIY ethos wasn't as common you would hear about it via Ani defranco and stuff but now everybody's got to do it that way like before people would swing for the fences and you'd have a chance of making millions but now you got to be in the tech world to really do that and so i find that with music today the people that are doing it are doing it for the music i think yeah yeah tell me more about that like uh you, you can it to, to swing for the fences and kind of reach uh, critical mass you have to be into tech or what, what do you mean by that oh what i meant was if you want to go for uh millions of dollars don't be a musician ah, get into gotcha. the tech okay. world like yeah, design yeah. an app or come up with the next google or something right. i guess what i mean was the tech people are kind of the new rock stars right and i think that started out with steve jobs and he would come out on stage and everybody would cheer and be wowed by his new product and musicians used to be the people that were like, Oh my God, what is John Lennon up to? The Beatles broke up. Like if you watch that Apple series, 1971, that's out right now on Apple plus TV. It's all about, you know, what was happening in 1971, which was the Beatles had broken up. Marvin Gaye was seeing what's going on. Uh, Altamont had already happened. Somebody was stabbed by hell's angels the whole peace, love, dream sort of died. And so we were looking at what rock stars were doing, but to get a record deal was like a big deal. You know, like if you, back when I was starting, you 
you didn't hear of people just going, I'm going to put out a record and start touring. You'd need somebody to deem you worthy and give you a record deal. And then indies came around. But now anybody can do what they want in their house. You know, they have the technology. You can start your own podcast. You can um, write a song, make a video, and get the whole thing disseminated the same day and get it spread out there. And if it clicks with somebody, it clicks. I don't know that we have as many viral moments as we used to. I think the key to it is just um, doing it every day and being very consistent, like the Joe DiMaggio kind of person and coming out and, and taking your at-bats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you speak to me a little bit about how like you, you have a bit of an aversion to technology. You're not like a huge fan of it. Um, how is that? Uh, how have you kind of like... Um, worked through that in the in this new era of music where you kind of have to be a little bit decent at technology to keep trucking well i'm pretty good at it like i can make videos and i can put things up on instagram facebook and all that and i can record into my voice memos at home i can i need to get better at like when i stream when i was doing streaming i was just streaming into my iphone sure during this and people would whatever tune in and you get a bunch of people watching. But uh, a lot of my friends really stepped it up and they were getting special lighting and good mics. And I just didn't do that. And I kind of wish I had. And I have another friend that got really into recording at home. You know, all my friends can either work Logic or Pro Tools or um, Luna and whatever they're their dies and I need to get mine better at that because I just, I've always known people with little studios. So I would just go over there, but I think there's a benefit to learning how to do that at home because you may get a take that nobody's ever going to hear in his studio. Cause when you have a studio, you've got to go in and you've got to be on that day. Yeah. And, yep. and that can also be good because then you're around people and they're watching you and you're, you're performing and you're like, you want to impress them and hopefully you're playing well, but maybe left to your own vices at home, you can just record yourself when you're really feeling it and find when your voice sounds best, what time of day. Yeah, man. Like get that lightning in a bottle take for sure. Um, you seem to be like, you know, I've been kind of keeping tabs on what you're up to. You seem to be pretty tireless with like the road and the touring. Obviously you love travel. Um, do you have any advice for like, myself or other musicians who have like really kind of you know can hit burnout when you're kind of going too hard or playing too much and um you know just kind of out in socializing too much any any advice for like the long game and staying in the game and not getting burnt gosh i feel like i'm completely the wrong person to ask because i don't have any balance i just have always toured just with the reckless abandon and it's all I've wanted to do. I had a friend ask me the other day, he was like, Hey man, I was talking with my friends. If you could give up your music career to have a 10 year career in the big leagues playing baseball, cause we all love baseball. Would you do it? And they all were like, hell yeah, I'd do it. And I was the only one who said no. Yeah. And they thought I was lying. I said, no, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I don't need anything else. I've, I've made a bit of money. I can play. I don't need a lot. I don't have extravagant. I don't need whatever, some really fancy car. Yeah. I need a nice car that gets me where I need to know. I have a guitar. So 
all I want to do is write songs, play music. So I might have a little bit of an aversion to a technology, but I love it when I click in. I think only if I get scared that it's not going to sound good, like doing a podcast or something. I need to get better at my home game. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I know it would be easy. I would just have somebody come in and set me up with an SM7, which I have, and go, here's how you use Luna. Because I, I got uh, that Apollo Duo, and I don't even use it. And they and it came with Luna as the DAW. But my friends are using Logic. Like, uh, my buddy Anthony DaCosta loves Logic. And that seems like a more grown-up version of uh, GarageBand. You know, yeah. self-explanatory. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, but I, th- I think that getting back to your question about touring and the advice is you have to find what works for you and when you need to take time out and how much time off you need. I'm still swinging from the fences. So like I just did 16 shows in five days two weeks ago in San Francisco with this promoter, Casey Turner. He was like, oh, we yeah, do one show dude. a day. And yeah. he, I go, why one show a day? Let me do two a day. And then he said... More people want to hire you because he threw it out there. And so he goes, you yeah. have 16 offers, but you only have five days. I go, book them all. And he goes, what do you mean? You'll, it'll kill you. I go, I can do 16 shows in five days. And sure <laughs> enough, I did it two weeks ago. And it's an hour and 15 minute show. And then we drive to somebody else's house, play another one. And I was hitting my stride. And then I had three days off and played a sold out show here in Nashville at City Winery. And I was like, came off I felt like I'd done high altitude training. So Wow, man. So I I think like you have to find what works for you and do you how much time do you need off? I'm I'm of the other school where I just never say no and I never admit even if I'm tired. I'm one of those people where I'm not going to I'm just going to say, "Yeah, I can do it. I can do it. Yeah, give me another gig." So I always told my booking agent that, but I don't think it's a healthy way. And I don't think it's balanced, and I don't recommend it for people. So I have no advice for you. I love that. it, man. I, I I envy that kind of fortitude. So if that's a high, you know, gigging sixteen times in five days, what what are the what are the lows like look like for Pulse? What's like the other What's like the other side of that coin? Um, when I guess. If I met with rejection, like if I really wanted to do something and it, and it, for some reason it didn't work, like I couldn't get into some festival that I thought was going to be the holy grail Mm -hmm. of my career, I'll get down and then I'll go, well, let's go after it again next year. How do we get this? And so I don't stay down very often because I'm always busy doing something. I think it drives my wife crazy. Cause she travels with me and she cannot stand it the way that I like it. Mm-hmm. And so that's like something I have to work on is balance. Cause I just keep saying yes. So the pandemic, she loved the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like she was so into it cause we didn't do anything. The I just did some online shows. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody thought I was going to go crazy, but what I realized is I'm just, happy doing whatever I'm doing because I got into reading I walked every day six miles a day I got into baking and I just I'm kind of tireless and I love I love to read I love to learn things so I just 
kind of just use my energies in other ways. That's incredible, man. I love man. watching movies. I don't get down very often. Man, that's fucking unbelievable. Um, I know. That's so cool. Like, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, uh, I, I always feel like every time I'm like way up, I have to like pay for that on the other side, like the yin and the yang kind of theory. Um, and I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if I'm like a diet bipolar or whatever. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, no, I, I know people get like that ups and downs. Yeah. Yeah. But I know you had some, I listened to your pod with Frasco and I mean, I know you had some completely psychotic party stories early on. So that was like, that must've been a big lesson from the universe. Like I can, I can party on and, uh, and smoke i think you're talking about smoking crack and i don't know um cor- correct me if correct me if i'm wrong but uh and then but then once you deleted that instead of being like way up and then way down you're up most of the time like that's that's so incredible that sounds like actually quite good balance to me pulse well if you do coke or ecstasy or dmt you're going to have highs and lows and then you're going to be depressed. I I can only speak for me. Mm -hmm. And so if I was drinking a lot, I would get lows because I might do something really stupid. Like, I don't know, you know, name it, I've done it. And so like you do something really stupid and then you feel guilty and then you go out and drink again to alleviate the guilt. Oh my God, I can't believe I slept with that guy's wife. What the fuck was I thinking? And then you drink and then you like repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. And then I would find myself getting depressed and anxious and full of anxiety. But, and I'm still learning this, but like if I cut alcohol out of my diet and cocaine and ecstasy, I'm not going to have those super lows that were making me feel depressed. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I don't feel so bad. But, um, and playing gives me a high, playing shows. And I always have to do something new on stage. So I'm kind of addicted to the adrenaline of that. I know I'm an addict at heart. That's cool. So uh, I think we all are, because as long as I'm doing that, I'm not thinking about other things in my life, probably. And, so what about a what about like a good was there like a good come to Jesus moment for you on like a a really disastrous party night or maybe just a road story that went went awry that you like to tell? Well, there were times in my life where I'd be on the road and I would always tell people this, you have the most extreme highs and the lowest lows. And I would be alone on the road and I would play some gig and it would be just transcendent. And we'd all be drinking. And then I'd have to get up early because my booking agent would be like, listen, I got a gig that just came through, but you have to drive 10 hours. And it's in San Angelo, Texas. Um, but they, they're super fans of yours and they want you to play. Really? They like me? Yeah, but it's past the hat. And what do you mean past the hat? Like there's no guarantee. No cover? No, and it might not be a big crowd. And I'd be like, oh, I'll take it. Yeah. And then I would get in the car and drive and get there, and it would be horrible. And I might make $27, and then I would leave so feeling so defeated, like, why am I doing this? There were so many times I wanted to quit. 
where I was just like, screw this. And then something good would happen. And if it was easy, everybody would do it. And so I, I would slowly build my calluses and, and I came up with this. I didn't come up with it, but somebody told me about this, this long running joke we have with this friend of mine where we'd say, remember, everything's riding on this one gig. And oh, that's yeah. our huge, it's our huge joke because David Crosby said that to my friend before he went on stage to play uh, Jim Bay with Jackson Brown one time at a festival. Jackson Brown saw my friend Jeff Berkeley playing and was like, I want that Jim Bay player. And yeah. David Crosby was side stage. He goes, hey, kid, remember, everything's riding on this one gig. So this has become a long running joke with me that and it's just kind of to show nothing is really that important. And. So I just constantly think if I'm really tired or I'm bummed out and I go, I don't want to go play this gig or talk to the people and shake their hands. I always just go, come on, you little wuss, get out there. Yeah. And I just give myself a pep talk and go, come on, you wrestled 98 pounds. You had to lose weight. You did this. This is nothing. Remember when you wanted this? And then I just go, oh, oh yeah. And That's so I really don't, I'm not a negative musician. I'm not bitter. I know so many bitter musicians that are jaded, but I still get so excited mm -hmm. about gigs. I'm like, oh my God, I got, I playing this gig coming up for these people or at this club. And remember when I was younger, I would look in the reader and I would see Loudon Wainwright or somebody was coming to McCabe's in LA. And then now I'm playing that room yeah, and, I, and I'm, and it's selling out and people are coming to see me. And I think, God, I'm, I think that's why I'm not bitter or jaded is because I'm the kid who didn't make the team on the basketball team. So right. I'm a 98 pounder and I'm still trying to prove my worth. It probably all comes from insecurity is all it is. And I'm trying to oh, placate I, my eagle. I know? love that, man. Anytime I'm feeling like uh, unmotivated or, or, or a little bitter on the road, I'm, I'm going to go like straight to your Instagram or something, try to get myself jacked up. I, I love that idea of like saying before you go live, and joking to yourself like everything's riding on this one gig and i might if you don't mind i might start saying that to myself because oh, please do. i put so much pressure on myself like oh this is so <laughs> important and every it's such a big deal and then i don't want to let the people down i can't i can't make them uh not like me all that sort of stuff and instead of psyching yourself out maybe you got to psych yourself in pults and say everything is riding on this one gig. Maybe that would help. I love it. You know what's helped me is if I'm really honest with an audience and if it is a really important gig and I have done this before I've walked out and said, I was backstage and before I went on, I said to myself, I looked in the mirror and said, remember, everything's riding on this one gig. And then the audience was laughing. I go, I mean, I have put a lot of pressure on myself for this gig right here for you guys yeah like you don't even know i didn't even sleep well the last two nights i was nervous because this was a great opportunity for me to play this gig and now here i am telling you about it how big of an opportunity it is when i should just be playing my music but i wanted you to know how important this is and people have appreciated that so how do you is what about that anticipation anxiety like that kind of anxiety leading up to an event or a moment and it could be something like a gig or it could be like having to make a phone call or do a meeting at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Do you kind of just sit in that anticipation anxiety and just feel your way through it? Or do you, do you distract yourself and go do something else? Or do you not get it anymore? 
Um, I get it less than I used to because I realize nothing is that important. <laughs> it's just not that important. And so then once you realize that, it makes the gig more fun. You know how they say the first tenet of Buddhism is life is suffering? And that's why the Buddha is smiling because he's already figured it out. Of course, this sucks. They told me it. So it's funny to Buddha, like, oh yeah, life is shitty. And so it makes, makes them laugh. That's, maybe that's what I figured out. Yeah, this man. is as good as it gets. But I don't want to be a professional ball player. I don't want to be, I don't want to be Jason Isbell. All I want to be is me. I just want to be, go out and do what I'm doing because I have a good thing going and nobody can do what I'm doing. Nobody. And only I can be me. And not everybody wants to be doing what I'm doing anyway, so it doesn't matter. But I'm still looking for the perfect show and I'm still trying to write the perfect song and I have not achieved that yet and I never will. But I'm always going to be, I'm like a crazy person looking for this thing that's unattainable. Love it, man. Yeah, you're like the Lucky Charms guy trying to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but you can never get to the end of the rainbow. You can't. You can't get to the end of the rainbow, no matter what you do. So you might as well just go out and have fun and play the shows. And I mean, definitely do the best show you can do, but it you don't have to take it so seriously. What about like, uh, I've seen you play only once. Um and I know like bits are a big part of your show, like banter, stories between songs, jokes. Um, are the, do you ever write that stuff down when you get an idea? How do you like document like ideas? How do you keep, keep your brain in order? Or is it all just like full on, full blown off the cuff, just whatever happens, boom, in the moment at the show? I wish I was that organized to write things down and I'm not, or I'm just too lazy. But I just kind of have stories in my head and then new stories and things I make up that aren't true, but have a little bit of truth in them, but a lot of exaggeration. And I just go in and start playing. And then I never use a set list. I just walk out on stage. If it's a huge festival and there's 5,000 people or it's 50 people and I just start playing and go up on stage and start winging it and ad-libbing and then seeing where I can go, talking shit about the town I'm in, something I saw. Like, people want that sort of commonality and saying, yeah. I stopped at this place today to get a burrito. Ever been there? Yeah, yeah. And I went in and took a piss. And, like, you just talk about stuff. Like, um, make up a story. Um, and then that leads to something else. If I do something at the beginning that makes that's kind of dangerous and risk taking, it makes the show better because I've already screwed up and done something really stupid, so it can't get any worse. Yeah. And then those are the best shows where I don't give a shit. And I just start saying whatever's on my mind and taking it in weird directions. Tell me And I have gone too far too doing that. So Tell me about the no set list thing. Can can I, I'm intrigued by that because I, I get into these patterns and I'm like, oh, that story worked last night. Let me do that story again. 
you think do you think I can pull that off? How does it work? You just go out there and then you just like think of a song that's in your catalog and blast into it. What happens if you can't think of a song? You play a, a Skinnerd cover or what? Well, my friend John Craigie writes down all his bits he's done in each city and he keeps track. He has a journal, he does his set list, everything. So he knows if he comes back to his city, did he already tell that story? Oh, nice. He's hyper organized. And I'm of the whole other school of just winging it. So for me, I, I have stories and I'll think, oh, I haven't told that story in a long time. Or I just like making up new stories and riffing on things. So I'll have song ideas in my head. And I'll go, I haven't played this song in a long time. So I'll work on it backstage and go, and then I may not play it. But I feel that I've, I'm so comfortable on stage and I have so many songs that I will do a song that kind of scares me to do because I haven't done it in a while. And I'll tell, if I talk about the song, I can make it really funny and goofy in my story of talking about how I wrote it. And I'll just maybe even lie about, I'll say, I wrote this in a Catholic church. Yeah, sure. You know, and then or that'll lead me to a story about being an altar boy in the Catholic church. And so that leads me down a whole nother path. And then somebody may shout out a song. And if they shout out a song, I may then go, oh yeah, I haven't even thought of that song in a long time. Let me look up the words and then I'll, I might do it. And, but I don't like to have dead air. So I like to take control. I don't like to say to the audience, what do you guys want to hear? What song do you want to hear? Right. I think that's the worst thing to do. Mm-hmm. And my friend Jewel does it all the time. She'll go, what do you guys want to hear? And she'll be playing. There'll be like 3,000, 5,000 people screaming songs. And she'll go, what, what? And I think it like, <laughs> that's her thing. She likes to do it. But I think that's not good because it, it's just, then everybody starts talking. And I feel like you kind of lose the audience. I feel like the audience is like a horse. And a horse knows if you're scared when you get on it. And an audience knows. So yeah. I like to walk out and take control from the moment I walk out on stage and not have any dead air and have a story lead into a song, go into another song, tell why I like that song, tell something really personal and almost really dark and then something super funny and kind of take the audience on a journey and make it have, you got to have an arc in the show, you know, ups, downs, peaks, valleys, and then end with redemption end with everybody on their feet. And so like before I go on stage, I always peek out at the audience and then I say a quick prayer to whatever my idea of the maker is, just thanking whatever that power is that gave me these gifts. And I just say, I want to go out and make people forget how shitty their lives are and make them smile because everybody's got shitty things going on. We all do. Mm. Some of you might have... Some may, I don't know, they might be going through a divorce. They might not have come out as gay yet. Who knows? What the fuck? They're suffering from anorexia. Uh, some Their boss fired them that day. They're unemployed. Who knows what? Yeah. You know, everybody's got shit they're going through. We've all got some dark secret. And so I want to take them on a journey and have them go, holy shit, that guy made me laugh. And that guy is an idiot. And I can be an idiot and I don't have to take everything so seriously. And I just had the time of my life 
And I always know if I do a good show, if they say, when are you coming back? I love it, that's man. The, that's what you want to hear an audience member say. When are you coming back? Right. I'm going to bring a bunch of people next time. If they just go, meh, that's not good. <laughs> I'd rather have them go, I fucking hated him. That's good. Because then they're going to tell people, I hated this guy. Oh, good. At least you got a rise out of them. The worst thing is to have them go, how was the Steve Pulcha? I guess it was all right. Yeah, totally, totally. It's all right, man. No, I want to have him go, holy shit, I saw this guy and he blew my mind. I can't believe what I just saw. You've got to come with me next time. That's what I want. Or So, so you talk about sucked. taking risks a lot on stage. Tell me about going too far. Give me a good like going too far story. I played at the Ark in Ann Arbor and my <laughs> booking agent was there. And sometimes I just go insane. I don't know what happens. It's like I just go into Jonathan Winter's land. And he was kind of crazy. He would start believing he was the characters he was. And I just got so risk-taking where I was I was just making up song after song on stage and riffing on really weird shit, like telling the audience, have you ever stretched your balls and shined a flashlight to them and look what they look like? And just saying just weird shit, talking about taking a shit, just like stuff that didn't need to be said. And I, I had this girl tell me, my friend told me, I had, she had to beg a friend of hers to take her to the concert, said, you're going to love it. And she said, her friend said, I will never see this guy Again, the rest of my life. She goes, but it was like your greatest show I've ever seen. But this girl was like a super fan. And she goes, but I didn't know I was going to take her to one where you were really getting out there. Because she likes it when I lose my mind on stage. Yeah, yeah. And not everybody likes that. And I couldn't stop myself. It's like I knew I had gone insane. And I know I come from crazy stock. And my mom was crazy. And she had to get shock therapy. And she suffered from big time depression. And I know I have this in me and that's why I was using a lot of drugs. I just um, sometimes take it too far. Even my booking agent was like, dude, that show was way too long. Like she just went fucking nuts. And I was like, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that feeling where you you have a joke in your head that, to you. maybe it's like a Hitler joke or whatever. It's, you know it's risky, but you know it's hilarious to you, and you even know it's kind of going to bomb. Are you yeah. the type of cat that just goes for it anyway, just to keep yourself on your toes, even if you unfortunately, know you're yes. And I remember one night I was doing a show, and I I drank a bunch of Nyquil, and I was really sick. And I have this thing where I never cancel shows. I've played with stitches in my head, with a concussion. I just, I like I told you earlier, I demand a lot out of myself and nothing will stop me. And I remember I was just, I drank a bunch of NyQuil and there was a woman there who was really nice and they loved me. They, they did love me. And <laughs> so I said something about breastfeeding. Just like something just that was just not cool to say, yeah. especially in today's woke culture oh, and yeah. PC. And I think she had like a lot of cleavage. And I was talking about how breastfeeding, I don't even know. Like I was wondering if I was breastfed and that's why I had allergies. 
And I was like, I wonder if it was like a sexual thing. And I think I looked right at that girl. I mean, I said, I mean, like, who wouldn't want to breastfeed, obviously, but you. And then it was like just the worst thing you could have said, like where you'd know. And then I remember the promoter, Casey Turner, by the way, was like, those people will never come see you again. And they wrote me a letter about how offended they were. And yeah, so I've had people, I've, I've gotten emails from people where they were so mad about something I said in a show. Like I have a song where I have, it's Johnny Cash and he has sex with a transvestite and fucks her and then shoots <laughs> her slash him. It's called Trash. I had somebody so fucking mad at me. They waited in line to yell at me. I did a show as well in Northern California. I don't know why Casey Turner keeps coming up. But it was one of those stupid fucking free festivals. You know those free festivals where they don't charge you to get in? It's like a street fair. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you get crazy people that would never pay to see you come in. And they're just fucking cuckoo. And everybody's... Everybody, it's not my audience. Right. And so it's like a street fair and they're like, hi, look at these things we're selling, this shitty art. And so I'm up on stage singing about, I don't know, being an altar boy and getting a hard on. That's what it was. It was a story about how I used to get a hard on in the middle of mass. And now <laughs> when you get a hard on, and I was explaining to the audience, when you get a hard on and you're like, 12 years old, 13 years old. It's like a real hard heart on and how you can't, it, when you're ringing the bells at communion time in the Catholic church, if you have to stand up, which you have to stand up, you can't stand up because your heart on's straight down. So you have to do the shift oh. where you shift your dick so it goes straight up. <laughs> so it's sticking up and put it under your belt. Oh, That's I was worried like, about, because I thought you only had a shawl. Maybe you didn't have a belt to like tuck the boner in to kill it, you know? No, I had jeans on underneath. And oh, so nice. I had to do the shift to make my heart on straight up. And then I bring the wine up to the priest. <laughs> and I'm like, that priest knows I had a, have a heart on. He probably likes it. And then Jesus <laughs> is looking at me on the cross with a crown of thorns and a tear come out going, I know you have a heart on. I'm so saddened by you. And Jesus is giving me the sad look. And the priest is looking at me like he wants to jack me off. And I'm sitting there with this heart on. Why do I have a heart on in front of everybody? And I'm talking this kind of shit. And these people get so fucking mad. Oh, yeah. And, and he got so many complaints. And Casey goes, I still get hate mail. I have a friend who played baseball for the San Diego Padres, Tim Flannery. And he had all these, like, Christian fans, real Christian-y. And he was selling out a 2,000-seat venue because he's a baseball player. And this fucking guy has me come out to play a couple songs because he loves my music. But he tells me before I go on, don't play Monkeys Coming Out of Your Ass. Yeah. Do not play that. Do one of your sweet songs. Because I have a lot of sweet songs that are, you know, if I wanted to, I could just do the sweetest show. And I should have done it years ago. And I would have been farther along in my career. But I have this ODD, oppositional defiance disorder that kicks in in the show. And I'm like, I'll say whatever the fuck I want. And so he he made the mistake of telling me, don't sing Monkeys Coming Out of Your Ass. Do Holliston Street. And my parents were in the audience. God rest them. They're both dead now. They were in the audience that night. And I introduced them to everybody. And I did the sweet song first. And then I said to the audience, this is a song I wrote because uh, my parents are here. And my mom and dad are waving to him, and they're just so sweet. And I go, and my dad allegedly worked in air conditioning, but he was actually, I, 
And I, I can say shit so it's so believable. And I go, honestly, I can say this now because he's not with him now, but he was with the CIA. And um, he, as when we were kids, he would give us experimental hits of uh, LSD, like just small amounts. It wasn't bad. Like I was, it wasn't like I was too young. I mean, I was eight at the time. And so he would put a little bit of LSD in my cereal, but not a lot. And then would take me to the zoo to see how I reacted to the animals. It was doing these studies. And then one time he gave me like a lot of hits of acid. I guess there was a mistake or it was stronger LSD. And I saw monkeys coming out of people's asses. And I was by the, uh, by the apes and the monkeys. So I, I just would like to do this song for all you guys. And dude, talk about the sound of one hand clapping and me doing this song and I'm fucking sweating on stage. And he got, he still talks about, he got so much hate mail and people were so mad. And that was like, that's my typical career arc. Two steps up, one step up, two steps back. Yeah. I've had the power shut off on me on stage. I align. You know. I align with that ethos. I mean, that's probably like you've, you lose fans, but that, I mean, you losing fans is is probably the reason you still have a career. It's why people like you, you know. I the worst thing in the world to me would be to be some oldies act where you yeah. have to go like I'm in whatever that band is. Hey now, put your game on, get your game on. Smash that Mouth. Band. Yeah, what if you were Smash Mouth doing the Smash Mouth '90s tour with Toad the Wet Sprocket? Like, and I know Glenn from Toad. That would be my idea of hell. Oh, let's all sing our fucking 90s hit, and that's all we're going to do, and it's a bunch of people reliving that? No, kill me now. I would hate that. I always have to do new stuff. And I'm not saying they're bad for doing that, lest I come off as a snob, because I'm not. I get it. You want to make a living? I've never had a hit. Jewel had a hit that I co-wrote, but nobody gives a shit if I play it. And if I do play You Were Meant For Me, I like playing it, because people know it, but... I would hate to have a career where I was an oldies act playing and I had to do, and I'm sure Smash Mouth are great and Sugar Ray and all that. I, I mean, I loved all that shit when I heard it, but that to me would be hell. You got to go out and you have to play the song exactly like it was. No. Well, yeah, I think there's, um, there's something to like, like you said earlier in the pod, like if people want, this particular thing, they have to go to you. Like nobody can reproduce that. And you know, there's a tax you pay for being your own thing, for being like your own voice where you hear a Pult song, you know, it's Pult's, you know, but it's niche then. And then you're, it just, you sacrifice not, you know, getting that, that bigger, that bigger stardom or that wider reach. And I mean, it's a tale as old as time. It's like, um, you can you can be a bit more of a, a cookie cutter act and channel something that already happened or channel Mumford and Sons and do well really quickly. But then again, you're I mean, you're kind of a bit of a hallmark postcard of a of a band. You know, your your um people can go to multiple sources to do the thing that you do, whereas you're like your own your your own little currency, you know? I think if you are true to yourself, you'll have a career and it depends what kind of career you want. And I used to think I wanted to be big. Like everybody wants a shot at it. And I was in the rug burns and, but we constantly shot ourselves in the foot. And now I think about it, we were never going to be big, but what we did do and what I've done is built a small tribe 
of people that are coming for what I do. And so thank God for that because I still think it's going to be big, but it's never going to be, be a bit big. It's just not. And I love Springsteen so much. And I love seeing these acts that have gotten big like you too. Like I appreciate Justin Bieber, all that. And so my problem has been I've done stupid things on stage a lot as well. I remember one time I was opening for Jewel at the Coors Amphitheater in San Diego. 10,000 people at the height of Jewel's fame. 15,000 people. It was a shed. You know how they call them sheds? Um, Love a shed. Yeah. And so we were doing the shed show. And I remember this is pre-internet. I mean, like, it's 97. I mean, the internet was out, but not big, you know? We weren't really emailing each other. Yeah. Googling stuff. So... I remember these people wrote and said, our daughter got straight A's and she's in high school. And will you make mention of that? She got straight A's. And I was like, yeah. So I come up with this whole idea of which I don't run by Jewel management or anybody. And I go buy a 12 pack of Lucky Lager beer. And I come up with this whole bit and I wrap it. And then I go, is Sarah here? Sarah. And there's like 15,000 people. Sarah, and I say her name. I go, can you come up on stage? Security, please get her. And I go, her parents wrote me and said she got straight A's. And so she's here at the show at Coors Amphitheater. And I was like, what do you get somebody in high school who got straight A's? Do you get a Barbie doll? No, she's too old. So I wasn't sure. So here. So she unwraps it in front of 15,000 people and it's a 12 pack of Lucky Lager. <laughs> and she looks at it and I go, I figure since we're at Coors Amphitheater and it's already named after a shitty beer, why not go full shitty and go Lucky Lager? So we should rename this place the Lucky Lager Amphitheater. Fuck Coors. So she walks off stage with the 12 pack. Little do I know, this is going to make the evening news Mothers Against Drunk Driving are going to be protesting out in front of Coors Amphitheater because of what I did. I'm getting hate mail from Mothers Against Drunk Driving. The police <laughs> want to talk to me for buying beer for an underage uh, girl. And so luckily, um, years later, she came to my show and said, oh, we told the cops it was empty bottles. So you didn't get in trouble because they were all fans of mine and they still come to the show and they think that's one of the funniest things. Giving them a 12 pack of Lucky Lager. It's genius. I would be fucking canceled today. Oh man. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's like a guaranteed, uh, what is it? A felony to buy booze for an underager? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a good bit. I mean, it's a great bit regardless, but uh, yeah. And I, Coors was mad at me. Because I said, fuck this place. We should rename it the course. They said, he'll never play here again, too. And Man, you there's could have always whole, somebody that's mad. You could have a whole side hustle just like selling publicity stunts to people, you know? Just get weird in your brain, write it down, and, and, and make a cool G on the side. There you go. I, You know, now that I'm older, I'm like mellower. Now people that come to my shows, I'm just playing songs and telling stories, but... I think that we stumble along our path, you know, 
for wherever we are. Where was your ba- your last big stumble? Would you say where you're like where you were in the lurch, kind of kind of like for a while trying to pull yourself out in your recent life? Mm. I guess I would say I just keep going back to when I was in the rug burns for some reason because it was just like idiotic the things that would happen. But you I would say Oh yeah, go ahead. I remember we somebody gave us some pot bread and it was really strong. And we were listening to Of Mice and Men, and David Carradine was reading it. And we got to the gig, and we were all crying. And we got on stage. It was in Flagstaff. And I had the giggles so bad, I couldn't play any song. Yeah. And the band walked off stage and quit. <laughs> and I was just on stage laughing. That was the show. And I couldn't even get off the stage. And the woman that owned the club turned off the power and kicked us out of the club, of which we were on the sidewalk out front laughing even harder. Like, and there was like fans of ours that were there that were, some were laughing with us. And somebody still reminds me of that show, but we didn't do one song. All we did was laugh. No shit. Yeah. Like not one song. I tried to do a song, but just kept laughing. But I would say now like things that happen, like probably when I had a stroke on stage, people thought I was kidding. Yeah. Because... I said, I can't see. And everybody was laughing so hard. And I was like, flash the lights on and off. I had gone blind. I was like, I'm not joking, you guys. And then this guy's, you know, come on, sign this record. And then I was had to get driven to the hospital. And yeah, man, <laughs> don't die on stage because no one's ever going to believe you if you're like tweaking out, having a heart attack on stage. You're going to be like, Pulse is kidding. I know, I know. And I was rushed to the hospital, but I know how to, if you want to get to the front of the line at the emergency room, I know how to do that. Tell them you've gone blind and it was like a curtain coming down. Ooh, yeah. A curtain coming down means you're having a stroke, I guess. I didn't know that. And so I was rushed in and uh, they did, I, I don't know, I was in the hospital like seven days and then I couldn't read when I got out and... And I became, I got, became a deadhead after the stroke. That's when I, I totally became a deadhead because of the stroke. I used to cut the line when I would go to, I lived in Vietnam for a couple of years and I, I would go to the you hospital. You did? I did, yeah. Um, but yeah, to cut the line there at the hospital, you, you pay a um, hundred thousand Vietnam dong and you, shoop, you go straight to the front. Boom. You're in. Why were you there? I want to go there. Yeah, man. That If you want to do a weird tour, that is the ultimate. Um, I, I did you there tour for- there? You can't properly tour there, but I did. I did play there. I lived there for two years, and we would fly in and do festivals in like Hanoi and Bangkok and Singapore. And um, yeah, it was a it was a weird ride. But yeah, there's not like a proper touring infrastructure by any means. And this was like eight years ago, so I mean, indie music was not really something that was happening. It was like it was like heavy metal and like pop, you know, like Casio keyboard loop track pop that you would you would see um so yeah they they weren't really ready for me over there but uh it was a good run man i mean i went over and i traveled all around you know the philippines and vietnam and you know i went to bangkok and i recorded all these like lo-fi songs and like makeshift studios and Whoa, like did little... you play gigs 
Yeah, I played some gigs. Um, Where at? I play, you know, all all over the place. Any any big city, there was like a promoter that would like put on a gig. They're like, "Holy shit, an American acoustic punk act is going to come here! Like that'll never happen again." Let's do a show, and you know, they'd find some grungy looking. Were you alone? Yeah, it was it was a solo solo mission. I was I was just cruising around with a guitar and a backpack. But yeah, so you know, is Saigon cool. It's amazing. Yeah, that's where do I live. They have good bread, good French bread. Well, they coffee. got they got the bon me, and uh, you would love the the coffee because they got the the cafe suda, where it's just like it's like it's crack, man. I mean, and uh, you sit on the sidewalk on the little Fisher Price like uh, plastic chairs and drink coffee. Like all the local guys will be there in the morning, like ripping cigarettes and coffee, and like eating soup at like six thirty in the morning. And the motorbikes are whizzing by. And Did you learn out. to sit like an old Vietnamese man on your haunches? Yeah, it's really man. Good for your lower back and knees. Yeah, total like Mike Piazza squat ability. You yeah. know, I could really get down there and squat. And uh, you know, I would just be sitting next to these old Vietnamese guys. They would have like, it's unlucky to cut the hairs out of your mole there. So they, some of these old guys would have these big moles on their chin oh, with, yeah. with like three inch hairs coming out of it, and they would have to like push the hair out of the way so it didn't get in their coffee. And then they'd like rip the cigarette and the coffee and. Um, yeah. It's, yeah it's something man and uh you know but after the bread's good right yeah because they, they got that french influence yeah the french baguette is is big you know and you get a bon me in the states it's like a trendy hip food now you know it's 10 bucks 13 bucks but in there it's 50 cents it's like the go-to cheap street food so <sighs> but you can get some man. sketchy food man you can get some real sketchy bon me whereas Did like you like south vietnam better than north vietnam I grooved with with South Vietnam a little more, you know. Hanoi, I think, is visually maybe a little bit cooler looking city, just because it has it has more of the French architecture intact, um, and the streets are a little windier and weirder. But I don't know. Is it's, Hanoi the north? Hanoi's the northern big city. Oh, okay. So it has more of the cool architecture, you said. Yeah, but even even Saigon, the, the architecture is amazing. I mean, you can't. You can't believe it. It's hard to explain because you like you get around via motorbike, and it's always sunny, and the dollar goes so far. So you're living like a king. You can kind of buy any anything, any food you want. But yeah, I mean, it's like the visuals are so wildly stimulating, and the smells, and it, it almost looks like you're in some sort of like yeah, like weird Nintendo game, like Excite Bike, but you're on, but. There's more duct tape, duct taping all the wires and the buildings together. And it's almost like a mushroom trip vision in a sense. It's just so bizarre. Um, And, you know, the the plasters peeling off all the walls and the red bricks poking through underneath. And there's like all these ghost signs of like faded Vietnamese handwriting and painting from 100 years ago. So, yeah, man, you got to go. It's going to it's going to it's going to blow you there. Um. I, I was just out of college, so I was just totally kind of, you know, my band had broken up, my girlfriend and I had broken up, um, my world had kind of like fallen apart, um, and yeah, I was just like, I got to get out of here. My best friend and I had a falling out, so yeah, I just went uh, to Asia. Did you have a Vietnamese girlfriend? I I dated a Vietnamese gal from Australia. She was, she was Vietnamese Australian. Um, but I never, no, I don't think I ever dated a local, the, it was tough. It was tough to find. I mean, a lot of people there don't even know who the Beatles are, you know? So the, there wasn't a lot of 
pop culture overlap to talk about it 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 was a little bit trickier in that regard and learning vietnamese is like almost impossible so were people nice to you oh yeah they're super nice you know they'll engage you and they're i mean i was one of the few like tall gangly white guys walking around so they're they're like pumped to hang if 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 you're down they'll they'll hang out with you even if you don't speak the same language you know i'd I'd sit at the soup stalls at till like one in the morning and just like do hand signals and talk to people and muck it up uh eating a big bowl of pho for a dollar and a and a 25 cent beer on the sidewalk so occasionally there'd be rats running around at your feet there at the soup stalls but um yeah man do it do a do a bizarro tour of southeast asia i think that could happen i'll I'll tee up a few gigs for you over there you know who does well in the asian countries is uh jason mraz yeah i would imagine yeah i mean he does well everywhere he's like he's like he's like massive everywhere right but yeah but he really kills it over there like in singapore malaysia um for some reason those songs like really took off there. Cool. It's a nutso gutso. Yeah. 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 Nuts. You played a little bit. That's good. Yeah, it was good. Got my chops up and it was good. It was a good training ground. Hey, I thought of a I thought of a genre just now of uh, a made up genre you could perhaps use. Um concu- what is it? concussion rock. I love it. Concussion rock? Or maybe concussion folk. What sounds cooler? Concussion folk. Maybe Maybe concussion rock. I don't know. I like concussion folk because it's more, they more don't go together. Concussion rock goes together more. Yeah. Concussion folk is two things that are polar opposites that you don't think about as a lot, as much. Wouldn't you say? I love the, uh, I love it, man. I love, I love the, uh, I love your uh, acoustic Armageddon onslaught, you know? I'm always, I've always been a fan, you know, like when I hear the term, folk sometimes i get a little sleepy but when i see someone with an acoustic guitar just going full mayhem on it and playing it as loud as possible i i just like that's there's nothing better yeah i always liked even in the rug burns even though we were slamming a lot of rock and roll i always played the acoustic guitar that's we had an idea. electric guitarist with us so when we would do a song like Scott fucking Lana Toronto. Scott fucking Lana Toronto. I need a big old vodka Camaro. What what's a Scott fucking Lana Toronto? That song would just be slamming, but I'd be on an acoustic guitar and people would be going nuts. Yes. Those were the fun days. Ah, and- Pulse. I love it. I love you. I actually have to go to therapy in four minutes, so I gotta awesome. I gotta run. Awesome. Well, um, this was fun. Yeah, man. It's been an honor. You, and you're a Nashville guy? Yes, sir. Okay, we'll drink a coffee in Nashville. We'll drink a Vietnamese coffee there next time I see you. And uh, yeah, it'll be good, man. Um, keep fighting the good fight. You're 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 a good man, and I uh, I really uh re- really loving your your ethos and what you do. Good re- good talking to you. All right, Poltz. Much love. You too. Bye. program uh grab a record or a tour shirt from steve poltz's website i believe it's just poltz.com he's got some some rad swag on there um i've got some records up brettnewski.com jump on the patreon patreon.com slash brettnewski1 i've been trickling out new songs on there uh, uh demos as i write them i got this thing called songs in real time or as i write a song once it's done i record it onto the phone and then I put it right onto the Patreon, and um, that's how I, I keep the pod going, and that's a, that's a huge, 
huge um, catalyst to, to supporting the mission in the arts and culture. So thanks to everyone who's been on the Patreon. You've really saved my ass through the through the pando. So um, we got some live dates coming up. And where did I put them? Let me let me just tell you where we're going to be. Um, brettnewski.com slash tour. And we are going to be in... Let me load this shit. Where is it? Ah, June 18th. We're right outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dogwood Center for the Performing Arts, July 9th. New Albany Bicentennial Park. That's in Louisville, Kentucky, July 17th. Wisconsin Dells. August 13th, Fox River House. Appleton, Wisconsin with the Hatchets. And August 19th, Charlevoix, Michigan. That's in the UP, beautiful lake country up there. Flint, Michigan, August 20th, Blackstone Smokehouse. And um, I don't know if they announced... We're playing a festival in August in uh, um, Davenport, Iowa. I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything about that. So, But it's uh, Davenport, Iowa, August 21. Um, September 3rd and 4th weekend, I'm doing a little solo run, Destel Brewery in Bloomington, Illinois, and a um, uh, house concert series in Cambridge, Illinois. That's like an all-request show. So that's all I got for now. Um, much love, much respect, and... Leave a review if you want. No pressure. We'll see you soon. Keep the peace. Choop.